1: Why choose a Sleep Number smart bed?
0: Can I make my side softer?
1: Can I make my side firmer whenever I want? Can, Can we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that, cools up to eight times faster, and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers
0: report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com.
1: When we talk about preventing deaths from natural disasters, we often look at our physical infrastructure and how to build it to withstand withering conditions. But what about our social infrastructure, the network of spaces, institutions, and groups that help foster social connections? What role do they play in protecting the vulnerable? Our guest today is Eric Kleinberg, author of Heat Wave, a Social Autopsy of Disaster in Chicago. And it's an in-depth look at factors that led to one of America's deadliest Heat waves. Eric, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Nice to be here. You know, I'm very familiar with that event. Uh, I I actually uh, remember uh, doing some research and writing about it in some of my work on urban heat islands as well. So I've really wanted to talk to you about this. Uh, I often ask guests of this podcast, and it may not apply here, I often ask how you became a weather geek. But in this case, I say, Maybe I'll frame it this way. How'd you become a, an author that wrote about a weather topic that now is being discussed on Weather Geeks? That's I thought maybe you'd
0: say, you know, social geek. <laughs> we'll uh, take that, which I clearly am. I'm, I'm so look, I grew up in downtown Chicago in the 70s and 80s. And those were hot times in a number of different ways. And I, I was a basketball player, I was a soccer player. I kind of look back with regret at the number of hours I spent playing basketball on the pavement in hot summer days with no sun lotion on. I mean, there's some dermatologists out there making a killing off me and my friends for all the, all that stuff we did in the sun. So I, you know, I remember Chicago being very hot and feeling that in my bones, but you know, what happened is that I was about to start graduate school in California in the summer of 1995. I was actually living in uh, Paris and uh, I started reading these newspaper stories about hundreds of people dying in my home city, Chicago, in a heat wave. And it, it really didn't make sense to me at first. You know, I mean, it's always hot. How, how could a heat wave be killing so many people in Chicago? I mean, this is a time when the city was actually doing pretty well. Uh, and And then when I thought about it, I realized, well, of course, Chicago could have that many deaths from a heat wave because this was a story where you you, you needed to geek out on the weather and understand just what was going on with the heat, but you also needed to geek out on the society. And really it was like all climate events, it's this combination of how the weather touches a, a society, a city, a group at any given time. And, and as you know, uh, I wound up writing Chicago and, and many cities like it are really set up to be vulnerable to the, the weather that hit in 1995 and clearly to the weather that's coming,
1: if not already here. Yeah, that's a very important point because we are in a new normal climate system and the extremes are just different. They just are. Yes, climate changes naturally, but we are in an extreme, extremely different environment where our weather and climate extremes are, are different.
0: I just, I just tell you one, one quick thing on that. Like please, please.
1: I've been doing these interviews about the
0: heat wave for 20 years now. And typically it's like a running joke in my family that we do that, you know, July. I can't go on vacation because I'm on the radio or TV all the time. Well, this year, 2022, is the first time the interview started coming in May because Chicago had its first big deadly heat wave in May. And so that's just one way the, the weather is getting weirder, that these, these heat waves are they're coming more often and they're coming earlier.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I I wrote an article in Forbes just this week, Eric, on this because I saw people out there, oh, it was hotter in 1930 in the Dust Bowl. Absolutely. That was a really hot year and a really hot period of time. Uh, None of that negates the fact that the peer-reviewed scientific literature shows us that heat waves are increasing in intensity and frequency and then also in how they're being sustained once they set in. So uh, it's important to understand the context that, yeah, there were naturally varying climate events, but none of that refutes the fact that we're in in a, a steroid amplified climate system right now. And we're going to dive into these discussions. Before I do, I want to give a little bit of Eric's background. He's the Helen Gould Shepard Professor of Social Science and Director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University. He's the author of Palaces for the People, How Social Infrastructure Can Help Fight Inequality, Polarization, and the Decline of Civic Life. Uh, he has several other uh, uh, books as well. The one that we're really diving deeply on here is Heat Wave, A Social Autopsy of Disaster in Chicago, Uh, but there are many others that you can check out. Uh, He was the editor of uh, Cultural Production and a Digital Divide, uh, uh, which is a a really top, um, well-received writing as well, and many others. Uh, He's written for New York Times, uh, Rolling Stone, and and many, many others that we can talk about. But I really want to get right into the meat of the discussion of this podcast. Uh, Over 700 people died, the majority of whom were elderly and the poor. Uh, Talk about the factors at the time that led to such huge numbers.
0: Well, I mean, let's start with the weather. I mean, first of all, uh, it was an unusually severe heat wave. the, The temperature hit 106 degrees at Midway Airport in Chicago. The heat index, which your listeners will know, is, you know, what the kind of barometer of what the typical person feels is kind of a measure of heat and humidity and other things. That was 126 and, you know, because Chicago's a heat island, it's it's hotter than the surrounding areas. And crucially, it it doesn't cool off as much at night. So you have high, low temperatures you know, up into the 80s. And so, you know, there's no question that the, the weather was was really dangerous. But the other thing that made you know, Chicago so vulnerable is that there are more people today who are older in Chicago than they've ever been. There are more people who are living alone and aging alone than there have ever been. We see kind of aging of societies around the world and American cities have a lot of old people and a lot of people who are living alone. And that turns out to be, you know, social isolation turns out to be a big risk. And, you know, what's more, Chicago is a city that is famously unequal. It's it's racially segregated. It's segregated by class. Uh, There are neighborhoods where Uh, Conditions are really quite nice and people feel like it's the most beautiful city on Earth and their neighborhoods uh, that are an embarrassment to the United States uh, because of the abject poverty and the failure of of Chicago to to do something about it after decades. And so, you know, people in the the most disadvantaged neighborhoods faced really severe threats. and, And I guess I should say, finally just the, the kind of traditional hard infrastructure, or we'll be talking more about social infrastructure later, but the hard infrastructure of Chicago is not equipped to deal with the surge in demand that you get when there's a serious heat wave. And I will tell you that no American city is really equipped right now in 2022 uh, to deal with a surge in demand. So the power went out for hundreds of thousands of homes, you know, far more people and and the power outages lasted a couple of days. And, and you know, one thing to keep in mind here is this is a three day heat wave. Um, I it, it, We need to think about what would happen if there was a heat wave that lasted three weeks, which is, you know, what happened in Europe in 2003.
1: Yeah, we're talking with Eric Kleinberg about the social infrastructure's role in heat waves. And I, we've thrown that term out a couple of times now. And our Weather Geeks listeners probably are saying, well, what do you mean by social infrastructure? Thanks. Yeah. So, you know,
0: I actually wrote this book, Palaces for the People, about social infrastructure in 2018, before the concept was part of American politics, and when I say social infrastructure, I am referring to the physical places and, and organizations that shape our interaction. Um, it's the argument in my book that if we invest in those those places, the gathering places, you know, if we if we design them well, if we build them well, if we maintain them, if we program them, we get all kinds of returns to our collective life. You know, we're more likely to engage each other, uh, even across traditional social lines, but if we let the social infrastructure fall apart, uh, we become much more likely to hunker down at home. Uh, it, we, example of social infrastructure I, I like it to use is the playground. You know, there's if you could read Genesis in the Bible, um, the Old Testament, and there's no place where it says, you know, and on the fourth day God created the playground. It's not that we didn't get the playground from God. We, we, you know, we we built them, and we designed them, and and in some places we did it really well. And if you happen to live in a neighborhood where there's a good playground, and you've got kids it's transformative, you know, it's a place where you can go to to experience some joy, but also to engage all kinds of other people to build relationships. I like to ask like, how, how many relationships do you think exist in Chicago because two people met at a playground? You know it's it's a massive number but if you live in a neighborhood that doesn't have a playground or there was a playground there once and the cities let it fall apart so the equipment's not very good or there's broken glass on the ground which is what it was like when i was a kid or you've got a library and the library's you know closed all the time if you don't have that kind of social infrastructure you're more likely to be disconnected from the people around you. You have less chance of getting to to know people, of building relationships, and you're less likely to be supported. And so social infrastructure matters every day for all of us in ways that I think are really important, uh, including for for our relationship to climate and weather. Uh, But we know that social infrastructure can make the difference between life and death when there's a crisis.
1: Mm, mm, mm. visit carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be convenient comfortable ah. and we are back on the weather geeks podcast i'm dr marshall shepherd from the university of georgia and i'm speaking with eric kleinenberg who is the helen gould shepherd professor of social science and director of the institute for public knowledge at the NYU, And I want to sort of pick up on this discussion of social infrastructure. Uh, one, one thing that comes to mind is, as a, you know, I'm the former president of the American Meteorological Society. And one of the things that we always say during heat waves, and oh, by the way, as we're recording this, we're expecting temperatures similar to what Chicago experienced here in the Atlanta area today. I think 104, 105, and I don't even know what the heat index is planning to be. But we often say it's a part of our mantras, weather risk communicators, check on your neighbors, check on the elderly, make sure you check on your dogs. But I imagine that social infrastructure plays into this ability to interact and communicate and warn. For example, in the Chicago heatwave, one of my producers noted that uh, many people were keeping their windows closed and because of concerns about crime, particularly on the South side, where I know there's a large vulnerable uh, uh, community of color in that part of Chicago as well. So talk to us about how these typical cliche narratives that we use in the weather community, how do they resonate within the context of so- social infrastructure?
0: Well, you're, you're right that they can sound like they're person's got a deaf ear. I mean, uh, it, it makes sense to urge people to check in on relatives, to check in on neighbors. That's something that we all have the ability to do, kind of no matter who we are or where we live. Uh, knocking on the neighbor's door is a good thing. You know, calling your elderly friends or relatives is a good thing. But the truth is that some people face much greater threats and a much steeper burden than others and require more support. So, for instance, uh, you know, we have seen a pattern where neighborhoods that have a really uh, depleted social infrastructure, places that have a lot of empty lots and abandoned housing that have broken sidewalks that that don't have grocery stores and commercial venues, like, you know, they, they tend to produce isolation. Right, because they don't have things that draw people out of their homes and into public life, and it's one reason why, you know, we see consistently uh, people who live in neighborhoods like that suffer more, uh, you know, during weather events. And you're right that if you live in a high crime neighborhood, one strategy you might use to keep yourself safe is to nail the windows shut, right, or or to make sure that you keep them shut and locked because you know, you, you don't want to overheat, but you also don't want someone to break into your building. And so, you know, local anxieties about crime or other problems, uh, you know, often feel more urgent and important than anxiety about the heat. And so I guess I would say it's it, you know, I don't have a problem uh, with the, the kind of the weather channel reminding people to check in on people they love. But there is a real politics to climate events and and to weather disasters, and it's a mistake to tell people that they're able to solve the problem on their own. You know that they're they're responsible for their neighbors uh, alone, because really this is a pu- is a public issue. Uh, it's a policy matter, and one interesting thing about a heat wave, I like to say, is. You know, if you compare it to a hurricane, like, let's just think about the way the weather channel will cover a hurricane if it's coming four or five days in advance, we get a warning about this weather system. We have a graphic representation of it on a satellite. You know, we have these big color-coded images. Uh, We'll track it every few hours. Category one, category four, you know, uh, tropical storm. We have a whole vocabulary for it. We name it. And all of that work calls out to political officials to say, you better come home. And deal with it right so unless you're ted cruz you're going to stay there and deal with the problem but but um we don't do that for heat waves at all we you know we we, we just treat them like oh like it's kind of a funny thing let's get it let's get someone out on the street frying eggs on the street you know maybe we're a little better than that now but but we don't I, use- I
1: just i just tweeted about that recently because one of the common ways i see heat waves covered is you got kids playing in the fire hydrants and ice cream vendors exactly i, I often say like You know you have in your in your
0: mind a kind of stock imagery from a hurricane from a tornado from a flood right you can close your eyes and picture those things if i tell you to close your eyes and picture a heat wave you you probably see kids of color you know black or brown kids playing in a fire hydrant because that's how the media has covered this you know and 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 that is a, a kind of a fundamental error uh i think the weather channels of the world should have a color-coded map system, a satellite system to track a heat wave event. We should name the heat storms when they're coming in. Because as you know, in a, in a typical year, heat waves kill more Americans than all of the other so-called natural disasters combined. Earthquakes, floods, tornadoes, that together they don't come up, come up to what a heat wave does, but what heat waves do typically. And so why don't we... Pay attention to them in the same way. I mean, the, the answer is because partly because they're less spectacular. You know, a hurricane does a lot of property damage, it makes for good television. But if what we care about is human health and well being, we need to be doing a better job
1: yeah I want you to tweet if you're listening to this podcast when it airs tweet out there and give me your thoughts on uh, what you think about Dr. Kleinenberg's uh, suggestion for a, uh, a heat classification naming system of some time. there's been a lot of controversy in the weather field about for example the weather channel naming winter storms uh, and so forth so uh, I did see something recently I, I saw it on Twitter about some jurisdiction in Europe that is, has a three scale classification scale for heat. Uh, I, I think it was for one particular uh, city in Europe. I, I don't recall right offhand which one it was, but yeah, I, this is something I, I in my own personal research is more in the sort of hydrometeorological extremes like rainfall and, to some degree, but not quite as bad as heat. We have a similar challenge with the threat from rain and water as compared to hurricanes and tornadoes. And so I've advocated for some type of uh, scale that really conveys the flood threat or rain threat, even in hurricanes as well. So that's really an interesting and provocative thought that you have about you know naming heat. Uh, you know, that there'd be some meteorological challenges with it because as you know, I'm sure you've studied this in writing your books, uh, heat waves typically are associated with uh, the sustained high pressure systems that take place and sit there for a while. Um, but I think there, it's a really interesting thought. That's something really I hadn't thought about. And I've been in this field a long time. So it's really an interesting thought.
0: You got to talk to sociologists more often, man. We gotta, yeah, well, well, I'm, I'm, in, I'm okay. actually in a
1: geography department uh, yeah. at the University of Georgia. And we have folks to do that kind of work. And in fact, my daughter is going to major in sociology. She's coming to the University of Georgia this fall. Oh, so yeah. maybe we'll have more conversations. But I think it's interesting. One of the questions that we had teed up in our notes mm-hmm. is how city planning and civil engineering hearing perhaps of change uh, in approaching sort of disasters in in the wake of uh, the 1995 heat wave and others. So I guess what I'm hearing you say is it is not just about infrastructure engineering, but it's about, and I hesitate to say this, but about also engineering the society and social engineering in some ways as well. Well, here here we're, we're, we're talking
0: about the kind of cultural environment and our, our relationship to weather and our understanding of what we need to pay attention to. Right. That those are deeply cultural questions. And here, you know, I just want to say, I think that the media play a really big role in this conversation. Right. And the Weather Channel in particular stands out because it has such a powerful voice, uh, you know, in, in, in the way that we make sense of uh the, the the weather around us on a daily basis and also the climate system and i'm just calling attention to the fact that uh because other storms are visually spectacular and right like that a tornado is an awesome thing to watch you know a hurricane images of a hurricane look really amazing on television a heat wave is not great television but be, it, that shouldn't mean that we don't give it the attention it deserves. If if what the Weather Channel is trying to do is help us understand conditions that are affecting our lives, you know, the, a heat wave might be exactly the kind of thing that we need to worry about most in this country. Because, you know, we, let me just say again, that in 2003, there was a heat disaster that hit Europe. It was a three-week heat wave. And it got interpreted first as a French disaster because France announced that 15,000 people had died. Eventually, we learned that the excess deaths in Europe that summer were around 70,000. And when I did the math, one of the things that really stunned me is Chicago had a 700 person excess death count from a three day heat wave. France was 15,000 from three weeks. Well, if you look at the population, you'll see that Chicago and France had exactly the same death rate three days in Chicago, three weeks in France. So naturally, we should all be asking ourselves, what happens to Atlanta or Chicago or Washington, D.C. or New York City or Phoenix or Los Angeles? Put your city in there if we get a three week heat wave. I, what what if if our three day death toll is the same as three weeks in Europe, boy, that that is really something to be concerned about. And so yes, there's a there's urban design, and we can get to that. But there's also just a cultural reckoning we have to make with the fact of heat and the problems it can cause. And uh, I I don't think we've really done that yet. For all of our talk about global warming and climate change, I don't think we've really registered
1: what living on a hotter planet means. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepherd from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Klenenberg. Uh, He's with NYU and is talking all about social infrastructure. And we're discussing a a book that he wrote about the 1995 heat wave in Chicago and many of his other books as well. That book was called Heat Wave, A Social Autopsy of Disaster in Chicago. Uh, But he's also alluded to some of his other uh, work as well. One of the things that strikes me about that time, and I I, want to read this verbatim, Uh, this occurred almost 30 years ago. And it was a time when there was still some trepidation or even more skepticism. About climate disasters and climate change. It was all uh, more of a denialist uh, society. Then Mayor Richard Daly initially dismissed this as a routine summer heat wave and then blamed the media for hyping the event. He said, It's hot, it's very hot, but let's not blow it out of proportion. Uh, Daly said as cr- criticism mounted over the city's plotting uh, response to the death toll, um, This is something that I think you've documented and wrote about. Uh, Do you see an evolution in policy response at all to heat? Very much. I mean, I think
0: when I wrote the book, uh, the the heat wave was really a non-event. I mean, it had failed to register as a significant event at all. That was one of the reasons I wrote this book. Uh, It it felt to me like this incredible uh, disaster had happened and the world had not noticed In fact, you know, when that European wave hit in 2003, all the political officials said, oh, well, you know, nothing like this has ever happened before. How how could we have been aware? And it was partly because we had failed to learn from the Chicago event. And so we have come a long way since then. Uh, You know, there there are cities that get how dangerous the heat can be. Um, And, you know, at the time, as you said, people were reluctant to associate a heat wave with climate change because the science was a little fuzzy in the 90s. And now when you start talking about a heat wave, if you're if you you aren't talking about global warming, you know, you're you're clearly missing a big connection that you can't help but think about global warming. In fact, I did a new edition of Heat Wave recently and wrote about, you know, this, you know, this fact. so i think that cities are doing more that you know there's more attention to green space there's more attention to the need for cooling centers there's more concern about you know decarbonizing and shifting to renewable energy uh so that we're you know not locking ourselves into heat that we literally cannot uh, survive uh, which is happening in some parts of the world now Um, but but i would just say that we haven't gone nearly far enough You know, that we talk about it, but a problem for heat and a problem for the debate about global warming more generally is that it to this day has not become the most urgent problem. That there's, even if people are concerned about heat or concerned about warming, there's always something else that they're more concerned about today, you know. Crime or immigration or education or gun violence, COVID. COVID, Right. I mean, in fact, you know, I have written that the progress that we started to make on climate uh, in the 1990s got reversed on September 11, 2001, where, you know, suddenly. The big security threat was terrorism and a lot of the climate planning that the country had been doing got shelved in favor of this whole new approach to security and so so every time we start making progress something else jumps in and you know the, the paradox with the climate issue is that when when climate finally becomes the most urgent thing you know, the thing that you can't help but avoid because there's nothing that matters more it's probably gonna to be too late for us to do anything about it. And, and, and that's a massive social and political challenge for us. Uh, how are we going to not just acknowledge that heat is a pro, an issue and start to do a little thing here or there, how, how are we going to start to transform our energy system, our urban design, our, our, you know, our social infrastructure so that we can live in this new world and prevent it from
1: getting out of control. Yeah, something I've been thinking about as well on some of my day job as a a scientist and researcher at the university of georgia i've been working with colleagues at georgia tech and arizona state on a project where we literally talk about engineering cities for thermal justice and so we talk about a lot of this sort of disproportionate exposure and injustice and have proposed to the national science foundation recently some ideas to fundamentally think about how we engineer cities and i'm not talking about just the high albedo vegetation sort of low-hanging fruit mitigation strategy but some fundamentally intriguing ways to uh, innovate and in how we design and engineer city. So we'll see if we can move forward on that.
0: I mean, can you give it? Can you can I get like a quick preview? Is that like one thing that we don't know about? That
1: well, you know, uh, you know, there's a colleague, Doctor Yogendra Joshi, at uh, at Georgia Tech, who spent much of his career removing heat from the the server buildings of the Silicon Valley giants. And so he reached out to me a couple of years ago, and he said, "Well, what if we could do this on the scale of cities? We have some really interesting technology that we use at that scale, and what if we could repurpose or redistribute heat?" in interesting ways and maybe even reuse it mm -hmm. some of it's kind of proprietary proposed information right now is under review so i can't say too much about it but i'm certainly offline i'll certainly share some of these thoughts about what you know what we're up to because we in in the future we may want to have some sociology involved but that's that's for a different day we're doing the ballpark discussion my appetite is whetted. It sounds pretty intriguing. Yes. But I, I wanted to kind of come back to, I mean, I mean and by the way, shout out to the city of Miami and also Phoenix, Arizona, two cities that I know of, at least that have recently established heat officers. In fact, my colleague, Dave Hondula at Arizona State is the heat officer for the city of Phoenix. Um, but I wanted to come back to... What are your major takeaways from your, your studies? If, I mean, I'm sure you're the type of person that would get called to Congress. Maybe you have been to testify. What what are you telling them about what we need to do to move forward in this space? Yeah.
0: Well, well um, you know, when, when I go into the kind of policy world um, you know, one, one of my points is just simply that we need to take the heat more seriously as a health issue. Um, and, and, and we haven't done it uh as well as i would like so i must not be very good when i go to congress because i'm not not making much of a difference um but but i but i think also you know one of the things that's so strange about heat is that we know pretty well at this point from sociology which people and places are most at risk you know we it's not a mystery when a heat wave rolls into atlanta or chicago or new york which people and which neighborhoods are likely to be most affected. And at a minimum, we should be doing far more to reach out and make sure that they're protected. Um, You know, it's not just up to the neighbors and family members, you know, we should be thinking about what we can do with public policy um, to cool down buildings, to provide relief to people who can't get it easily. Um, But more than that, I think, You know, my research shows how much social infrastructure matters. And I guess the most vivid illustration of that comes from these comparisons between neighborhoods that I did for the original Heat Wave book and and wrote about again in Palaces for the People. But, you know, essentially what I did is for this heat wave in Chicago is I drew a map that identified which which neighborhoods had the highest concentrations of heat deaths. And when I first drew the map, it looked exactly like you would think it would look like the poor neighborhoods, segregated neighborhoods, black neighborhoods on the south side and the west side were hit really hard. And it was clear that this was a a, a racial justice event as well as a climate event. That doesn't surprise anybody. So therefore it's not scientifically all that interesting because it's what what we predict. But I looked a little bit closer at the map and I noticed something that no one had seen. And this is where the science actually does get very interesting. There, There are a number of neighborhoods that were black and poor, uh, that looked on paper like they would do very badly in the heat wave. And often they were right across the street from a neighborhood that was like also segregated, also poor, and did do very badly. But there was one special set of neighborhoods that for one reason or another didn't. They, In fact, they had this, They were among the safest places you could be in Chicago during the heat wave. They had among the lowest death rates in Chicago. So some black neighborhoods on the south side and the west side of Chicago that looked really vulnerable on paper had lower death rates than the affluent white neighborhoods on the north side. So what I did as a sociologist is I went to those neighborhoods and started to investigate, like, you know, what's going on in places that fare better, you know, where, where people are actually able to protect each other, where they're more resilient than you would expect. Even, even more resilient than the people across the street. And, and that's where I was really able to observe the power of social infrastructure. That what, what I noticed is that the neighborhoods that had high, high concentrations of death, they weren't just poor, they weren't just segregated. They looked bombed out. You know, they, they, they looked abandoned, depleted. They, they didn't offer the kinds of public gathering places that, that communities need to pr- provide mutual support and as a consequence, people who lived in those neighborhoods, they cared about their neighbors. They weren't bad people. It was not a cultural thing. They just, as a survival strategy, were more likely to kind of hunker down in their homes. That's, that's how you live if you live, if you're in an area like that. But the neighborhoods that had low death rates, it's a very different story. Despite the poverty, despite the segregation, um, they lived in neighborhoods where the, the public realm was in pretty good shape. You know, that people sat on their stoops, you know, on summer days, they went to the, the, there were shops and churches and neighborhood organizations and playgrounds and parks that were in decent shape. And that social infrastructure meant that if I don't see you out on the bench that you sit out every day, if you're always there at four o'clock and you're not there and it's 104 degrees outside, I'm going to come and knock on your door. And that, that is directly a function of the social infrastructure. And so I was able to document in a way that no one really had just how much social infrastructure matters uh, when it comes to uh, promoting health and well-being. It's true in a heat wave, but I also learned that the people who had the, lived in the neighborhoods that were safe in the heat wave, they, they had a significantly longer life expectancy than the people who lived across the street from them. In, in ordinary times so so I have been you know pushing Congress and everyone who will listen to take this idea of social infrastructure more seriously. when we invest money in building infrastructure we try to modernize our systems to adapt to the 21st century world we need not we need to not stop with the airports and the roads and the bridges. we also need to think about the parks and the playgrounds and the libraries and the streetscapes that make the difference when we need to be connected. And uh, fortunately, um, the guy who reviewed my book in The New York Times when it came out is uh, named Pete Buttigieg. And after he reviewed my book, I think there's a direct relationship. He was uh, named secretary of transportation and he, he plays an outsized role in infrastructure development. Uh, you know, the, the current presidential administration has a social infrastructure plan that they want to advance. They just haven't been able to get it through Congress. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic it's going to happen, you know, anytime soon, but I think inevitably we're going to have to make a big investment in this and when we do we're going to get massive returns.
1: Yeah, and I think this idea of social infrastructure is embedded across many weather climate disasters. We, we focused on heat today, but I think <laughs> the idea is very that um, permeates many facets of our weather climate community uh, as well. Uh, can where can people find you on social media or the internet? Thank you for asking.
0: Uh, I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter, where I go to events. Um, I think same with me as well. Yeah. <laughs> so if you meet me on Twitter, you will find lots of, uh, Tweets about the extreme heat, and you might also. Oh well,
1: I'll, I'll be heading over after this yeah. taping to follow you. If I don't already, I may already follow you. Actually, you might I, don't think, I don't. I don't think so. But uh, right, well,
0: I'll, see. I'll I'll follow you right back. How's that? Already. Um So, so that's probably the best place to to catch me. And uh, you know, what's, uh, what's I, that I, handle? Do you know it offhand? It's my name. It's at Eric Kleinenberg.
1: K L I N E N B E R G. Very good. Very good. So you know, like me, which I'm doing. As soon as we we sign off, I'm I will go follow Eric. Because he's talking my language here. I mean, I I, I think in the conversation of this podcast, uh, I'm certain I'll be circling back for some more scholarly discussions as well uh, in this space. But uh, Eric, thank you so much. We don't have a geek of the week this week, uh, but thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks. It's been been my pleasure. And uh, stay safe this summer. Absolutely. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks.